How Long Have I Got, Doc? It's a TV medical drama cliché, but like all clichés, has its feet in real life. In its medicine's attempt to answer these questions that the authors of an analysis article on the BMJ.com are questioning. Kirsty Boyd is a consultant in palliative care in NHS Lothian, a trainer and a researcher with the University of Edinburgh. Scott Murray is a GP and is also St Columbus Hospice Chair of Primary Palliative Care, also at the University of Edinburgh. They argue that it's time to rethink how we talk about prognosis and what conversations to have as patients become more unwell. And I spoke to them about how they would like to see healthcare change. So the central sort of tenet of your argument is that um, it's necessary to embrace uncertainty in prognosis in order to advance patient-centred care. But I think lots of people will feel that um, the drive towards being benefit, uh, sorry, the drive towards being definite um, was an attempt to sort of satisfy patients and families. Um, so how did we end up in this situation where uh, where we've got this sort of disconnect um, that you've highlighted in your paper? Thank you. Yes. I mean, death and taxes are certain. What is difficult is knowing, you know, when the death will come. Yeah. People quite often, patients are, how long have I got, doctor? But I think often within that question, they're actually asking a broader one, you know, what's going to happen to me? So to focus only on the time is possibly unhelpful. So I would suggest you could say, well, uh, the type of illness you've got, it's hard to know what will happen, but there are patterns that people may go through. So I would then explain to the person, okay, this is what it's like. For instance, if someone came to me with a heart failure back from a hospital, would say, okay, you've had a tough time there. Let's talk a bit about, let's say, we don't know what will happen in the future, but how can we prevent possibly another admission? Or are you worried about something? What would you like to talk about? Mm. I think that's right, I mean, and it's about balance. I think it's about recognising that people do need to have an understanding of what their situation is. They do need to know what might happen and to be able to discuss and plan for that. But we also need to accept that sometimes the, the things don't pan out the way we, the patients or the families might expect because we're dealing not with uh, something that that is always predictable or can always be controlled and managed. So it's trying to find a middle road that identifies when people's health status is changing, engages with them at key points in their illness journey and enables us to work together then on the things that need to be talked about and sorted. I think it's a question a lot of people see asked on TV shows, you know, how long have I got, Doc? So it's the one that they know they could maybe ask. But I think behind it, they really want to know, hey, what, what's this going to be like for me? I mean, that's really what you would probably want. You want to know the prognosis. You'd want an awful lot more than that, wouldn't you? And therefore, if you focus on this prognosis bit and you spend 10 minutes, we could do this on prognosis. You haven't actually spoken to them what it might be like for them. What's it going to be like until then? Okay. So the, the, we mustn't over-egg, I think, prognosis. You have these conversations all the time. How do you think patients feel about them? Um, are there some people that still want, still push for certainty? The way people cope with illnesses is, is incredibly diverse um, and there are, and it also is influenced 
not just by the illness they have, but also who they are, their own family situation um, and the way in which they tend to deal with life more generally. So it's about being able to work with that and to so that when we're having a conversation, we need to start with where that person and their family are, what they understand about their current situation. We can then share some information about what we know about their illness and what might be likely to happen. And we have to do that in a way that takes account of how they're coping. We've actually done a, a fair bit of research, over a thousand interviews with people in the last year of, of life. And in fact, we've shown that people have, in that period, tend to have things called competing narratives. For instance, if someone's had a brush with death, say they've been in the hospital with heart failure, um, or they've had cancer, you know, they're thinking, hey, you know, um, that, that's not so good. Maybe there's a problem here. So if I were to go up as a GP and say, how are you today? Such a person may say, I'm fine, doctor. That's their public account. But most people actually have a more private account. There are these competing narratives that are happening. So if we just go to someone and say, hey, you're looking well today, but are there ever days when you're feeling down a little bit? Most people would then say, funny you say that. You know, sometimes such and such happens. And that gives an opening to actually consider not only the hoping for the best scenario, you know, we're all fine, but let's make a plan just in case um, there's a problem in various areas. There was a point, um, two points in your article that I think uh, speak to the the complexity of this a little bit. Um, in one point, you say that um, people struggle if they are expected to participate in making explicit advanced care plans for situations they cannot relate to or, un or about unknown future circumstances. But on the other hand, observational evidence of doctor-patient communication shows that hypothetical talk about what might happen if the person became less well, for example, is particularly effective engaging people in discussions about planning ahead. So, I mean, what, what do you take from that? Well, it's mainly about dying, actually. So if, we, if somebody is still not in a place where they're openly talking about dying and considering that for themselves as a reality, it's very difficult for them to have meaningful conversations about where they want to die, for example, or how they might want to die, or what kind of care they would like to have when they are dying. I think some people find it easier emotionally to discuss about hypothetical things, and therefore it's easier to raise such an event that way. Also, if you're thinking, what we're also trying to say is, you know, do you want resuscitation or not? I mean, to suddenly come up with questions like that can be very unhelpful. And it's also good to just plan really from now till then, rather than to leap into the future into some hypothetical situation. I think it's quite useful just to say, okay, here we are now. What's the thing that you're maybe most concerned about and build up from there to there? And that way people can get it a bit more. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they want to talk very early on about where they would like to die and what those situations would be. But they may their situation a few months, weeks or whatever down the line may be very different from how it is now and may not be what they have imagined. And I suppose that comes down to, you know, a terminal illness doesn't necessarily mean a, a very short timeline. Um, exactly. So exactly. So that's why we would see the journey as having a quite a long process. So I would say that when someone is 
getting older or someone is so sometimes in some countries for example when people have health checks at a certain age their GP would say to them well have you thought about in nominating somebody to make decisions for you or have you made a will have you any particular views about your health in the future or things that you might or might not want a very kind of general broad approach and increasingly people are dying from organ failure say from heart failure COPD liver failure and, and, and renal failure they often have admissions to hospital and when they come back that's an ideal opportunity and in fact we're doing some studies where the hospital doctors are actually identifying people for care planning so this is early palliative care. It often it's, palliative care is uh, thought about as for cancer in the last weeks of life. But this early approach allows us to consider various triggers. Mm. Um, as you say, people think about palliative care as being the last days and, and weeks, especially with something like cancer. Yep. It's a loaded term, really. Do you think framing this as palliative care is actually a helpful way to think about it? Palliative care, as you say, is considered dying very soon, mostly of cancer. And patients actually don't want to die soon. And using that word is a barrier, a definite barrier to progress with more people benefiting from palliative care. So much so in Scotland, we have we are now started a thing called anticipatory care. And in America, is supportive care. Some uh, consultants are hiding the badges and call themselves supportive care doctors, really, so that patients can be referred there. Palliative care, the, the vocabulary is a problem. Do you go loud and proud about it and educate people? Palliative care is good for us. Or do we just actually explain what palliative care means? Because it just means planning for the future, for the various things that, should, the people, the pa that patients should care about, and actually being a bit holistic, thinking of different dimensions. So what you've been talking about here, you know, with that conversation is really all about very, very patient-centered care, very holistic care. Um, so let's talk about sort of rolling that out a little bit. Um, first of all, uh, this obviously would need um, a great deal of, of interaction engagement between a doctor and a patient. You know, in the sort of time-pressured world of medicine and where sometimes people may see a, a huge range of, of clinicians, um, multidisciplinary teams leading up to their death, uh, how do you think um, that doctor-patient relationship can be built up um, to, to, to facilitate these kind of conversations that you you talk about and that understanding of, of patients wishes I think that's about um, I think that's a very a very good point and I, I, I think that working in an acute hospital um, or in busy general practice in community focuses our attention on the the that this process has to be part of routine care. It's not going to be some very complex, special, extra long palliative care type thing. This is about making this a reality for ordinary clinical, for routine, normal clinical practice. Mm -hmm. That when you see a patient, you may not have a relationship with them. You might, and if there's an opportunity to have a relationship or to build with this over time, and that sometimes is the case, then that's obviously better. But in many circumstances, we work in teams, we work in multidisciplinary teams, we work across services, and we have to manage that process of care as well as we can. So it's about each, um, at each point where the patient or family have an interaction with a 
clinician, not necessarily just a doctor, many other clinicians do this too, that that's a point of reviewing where they're at, what do they know, what's their situation, what information do they need, are there triggers or signs that their health is changing and their future care planning is important and doing a little bit of that process. Um, so that's talking about sort of individual doctor uh, behaviour even if you're working together in groups. How about at a systems level? So um, to bring up the, the dreaded, dreaded Liverpool care pathway, I mean that was an idea of waypoints to, to sort of help perhaps guide care that through the process of being rolled out and systematised and incentivised, um, it turned into to a, a much more rigid pathway and then perhaps um, patients felt like this was, was almost railroading them down a, a particular path. So do you have any ideas about how you know, the, the medical system as a whole could, could start having these conversations and, and making this, this patient-centred care uh, work better? I mean, I think probably the Liverpool Care Pathway is not directly relevant to what we're, we're talking about here because that was talking about the final days of life and what we're talking about here is all that phase that happens before that. So in terms of systematising though, I think yes, you have to be very careful that any system or process doesn't lose sight of the patient and there, obviously there's a lot been written about the LCP and a lot of lessons have been learned from it. Um, what we would be suggesting is that healthcare systems look at points where people have, have contact with the system. So if someone comes home from hospital, a review includes have they got a plan, have they got an electronic plan, has someone had a conversation and how that is managed by different systems and teams is dependent on those systems and teams and when someone comes into hospital or goes home from hospital or goes into another setting um, then a review happens but it's trying to make those reviews less, in a way less structured but less formulaic I think. Um, I mean this talks back to uh, an earlier um podcast interview that we did about the problems with guidelines generally and the authors of that were adamant that actually this should all be about conversations um, and that that sort of systemization had had gone too far so um, so you're you seem to be harking back to the same thing that this isn't about working out exactly what to do but this is about interpreting patient wishes and and helping them make choices yes and if they're asking about prognosis specifically well we don't know that but what what is the patient really what how can you really help them what type of conversation and i could say okay a it must be hard for you just now when you've just when when you've got an x-ray here that possibly shows a cancer of course you're worried, okay? But things will feel a bit better once you're in hospital, we're getting the diagnosis made. And when you come back home, you know, afterwards, come and see me then mm. so we can talk a bit about, you know, how we can make the best of this, okay? Whatever, whatever's happening. Cause I know that actually with people, if you have cancer, it'll be worrying now, it'll be worrying when you get back home and there might be special times to be concerned of. And so I know about that. So you're sharing, if you want, these illness trajectories. And carers as well find it very helpful to understand the illness. 
I think people are really wanting to understand it and understanding Rib's feeling of empowerment, you know, and, and resilience, they know what they can bring to that. So it's really just explaining what we know, because we do know a lot. We don't know about the temporal prognosis, but we know an awful lot of what it's going to be like for them. So it's not prognostication at a point of time. I guess it's, it's, it's a matter of adding in conversations as we know about it. You've been listening to Kirsty Boyd and Scott Murray talk about how to talk about care toward the end of life. If you want to read more or to comment on what you've heard, their article, Embracing Inherent Uncertainty in Advanced Illness, is now available on thebmj.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more of Like It, you can find our full back catalogue on SoundCloud or subscribe via iTunes. Just search for The BMJ. Thanks for listening.